0: It's time for Security Now. Ever wonder how the internet works? Steve Gibson says it really comes down to three basic principles. All right, start thinking. Get your engines going. We'll have security updates, security news, and how the internet works next on Security Now. Netcasts you love.
1: From people you trust.
0: This This is is TWIT. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 309, recorded July 13th, 2011. How the Internet Works. Security Now is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, visit netflix.com slash twit. And by squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account for six months, visit squarespace.com and use the offer code SECURITYNOW7. It's time for Security Now, the show that brings you the latest security news with this guy right here, Steve Gibson. Of the Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com. Steve's a great man, a guy who's been doing this show now for six years. And of all things, after six years, we're finally going to find out the one thing we probably should have started with <laughs> how the heck the internet works. Well, I
1: mentioned some time ago that we were going to do this series and. I know it's months ago because, as you know, Leo, as our listeners know, we've had a very busy last few months Oof. with, you know, the addition of the attacks and breaches uh, category in, in, the, in the top of the show and just never, I mean, like literally never a moment to breathe. And so people have, through Twitter and through the mailbag, you know, grc.com slash feedback, have been, I see a constant, question, when are we going to do the internet, how the internet works series? So we're not going to suspend, we can't suspend everything else to do this, but I wanted to start today, today just sort of seemed like the right day, um, to, to start the series which will very carefully and methodically and in sufficient detail that it's, you know, I think it'll be very interesting to people. We're going to really understand all of the fundamental concepts and technologies that is the Internet, that, that is the way it works. And today, part one of the series, I've in, in sort of setting this up for myself and thinking about it, I realized there were three things, just three, three things that back then at the time were had never been done before, completely unproven. They they were new concepts and there's just there's just three things that is really responsible for everything else that followed. Three things that the original designers of this thing that you know outgrew its roots to become a global network, they got these three things right. And so we're going to talk about the three con- key concepts that underpins the way the internet works
0: as our topic for today. Three things. That's all it took. Yep. (laughs) I can't wait to find out what they are. Three three things done right. All right. If you're playing the home version of a security now, try to think of what those are. (laughs) And we will answer that question in just a bit. We also have, of course, security news. There's a big update today, or a couple of days ago. Um, And and a scary uh,
1: revelation from Microsoft about something that had been wrong since Vista Service Pack 1 that no one found out about until they fixed
0: it. Isn't that special? But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about our great friends at Squarespace. squarespace Squarespace.com. It's the secret behind exceptional websites. If you go to Squarespace.com right now, you can take a look at what is perhaps the best web hosting plus the best software for creating your brand new website. I'm seeing more and more. You know, I just Kevin Rose kind of the other and I know that it, you know Kevin doesn't need a website or whatever, but he decided to make his website be the new Google Plus. And I thought, "Kevin, come on, you know better. Everybody should own their own website. Your Facebook page, your Google Plus page, your Twitter page is not a website. You need to have your own website. And that means you're going to have to find hosting. You're going to have to create a domain name, and you're going to have to find software that runs your website on that host. Let's get two of the three done right now at Squarespace.com. In fact, click this. go to Squarespace.com. Click that big green button. You don't need a credit card or anything. Just the name of a site, a password for that site, and an email address so they can email you when the free trial runs out in two weeks. Now, for two weeks, you've got the full deal. You've got the whole magilla. You can use those great templates that aren't templated to... It's so, e- you know, you're going to love this part. Just play with, in fact, make this first site. It doesn't have to be the site. It could just be the play site. So you can play with the templates. You can use the drag and drop the point and click to create your new website. If you, if you know more advanced technologies like CSS and JavaScript, of course you can use those, but you, you don't have to to create a unique site. And then try the various features of Squarespace.com. For instance, the uh, fantastic iPad and iPhone uh, software. The blog importer, if you've got an existing site, it's very easy to get it into your new Squarespace site. They uh, have an importer for all the big APIs, WordPress, Movable, Type, Blogger, Typepad. Into and did I say out of? No, into and out. Shoot, you never trapped. Preserves all your links, preserves all your images. It is automated and it does a beautiful job. Even moves, it does what they call media rehosting. This is important. I've moved my blog, uh, I think it last count, nine times. And what this will ta- do is not only you know, f- keep all the URLs working and everything, but it will even move the media, migrate that media over to Amazon's S3 so you don't lose your images. That's super important. I just think you're going to love Squarespace. So try it free, squarespace.com. Now, if you decide you like it, of course, I know you will, I highly recommend you use the offer code SECURITYNOW7 because Steve will be happy and smile. And what are you going to do when you get that? Well, this this offer code SECURITYNOW7 gives you the first six months at 10% off. I mean, it's very affordable to begin with considering you're getting hosting and the best software out there, the best content management system out there. But 10% off of this for the first six months when you use SECURITYNOW7. That's our offer code, SECURITYNOW7. What could you? What, what more could you ask for? Great hosting, great content management system, great guys behind it. Squarespace.com. Try it free today, and then when you decide to buy, use the offer code Security Now Seven. We thank them so much for their support of Security Now. So Patch Tuesday was Tuesday, right, Steve? Yes, it was indeed.
1: Now there were 22 different security flaws of various ilk fixed. 21 were nothing we're not a real big deal they spread across various products pretty much all of the things and they were the so-called privilege elevation problems which are a concern because we do rely on on administrative rights being you know godlike within our machine and regular user rights being restricted so it is it is the case that that barrier is good to have and we don't want it to be penetrated but Um, So so there were 21 different ways of of essentially getting around that kind of barrier. But the 22nd problem was interesting. Um, Microsoft revealed at the time of this patch being available that there had been, since Service Pack 1 of Vista, which is when they introduced an upgraded Bluetooth stack, as it's called, a, a, a protocol stack for Bluetooth. And we'll actually be talking about protocol stacks relative to the Internet by the uh, end of this episode. Um, there was this is like the worst of all possible nightmares. It's it's we're assuming that no one knew about it, but this was a a buffer overrunny sort of problem in a wireless protocol. So. So quoting from Microsoft, they said a remote code execution vulnerability exists. Now, remote code execution vulnerability exists in the Windows in the Windows Windows <laughs> Bluetooth 2.1 stack due to the way an object in memory is accessed when it has not been correctly initialized or has been deleted. An attacker could exploit the vulnerability by constructing a series of specially crafted Bluetooth packets and sending them to the target machine an attacker could then install programs view change or delete data or create new accounts with full user rights and take complete control of a system without any user notification at any time so and then and then people in, in in the FAQ and the QA people were saying well um, if you know if i don't have bluetooth installed then i'm safe right and it's like well no because vista and win seven will instantiate the bluetooth device if you temporarily give it a, like a removable bluetooth over a usb so somebody could come along and stick a little bluetooth dongle into a machine that has never seen bluetooth and, and vista and seven will will Happily bring the driver online. That's where the problem is, Jeez. and then a, then and then an attacker could get into your system. And of course, so they don't they don't really need access to your system. They have to just
0: be within Bluetooth range of your system. Is that and they does? don't
1: have or have to be associated. We've talked about how Bluetooth protocol works, where there's there's a whole pairing association, which is is the one moment of vulnerability with Bluetooth before a common secret key is negotiated between endpoints, which are then memorized by each endpoint so you never have to go through that again when when you're reconnecting to a device that you have once paired with this doesn't require pairing doesn't require a connection basically it's it's a breach in the the lower level infrastructure of the Bluetooth driver I mean it's really what you don't want and and so you know we are like hoping we don't have these in our in, in, a, in the network than regular wired network stack that we're all using and depending upon pretty much 24 7 this is that same thing in Bluetooth and many machines just run with Bluetooth on and in fact there's a some feature that Microsoft's added you know again to make things easier where if you're in like network discovery mode it will turn on your Bluetooth radio without you asking it to just in case maybe that's what you're trying to discover so anyway, the good news is this has been fixed now. It's an important update, more so I think than most things because now the bad guys know about this and we know that they're on the hunt for it. We see this all the time is there's now a window between disclosure and and the time when people are going to get patched and we know from history that lots of machines are very late in getting themselves patched. So one could imagine that the hackers are, are all focused on this problem now. So I'm sure our listeners will do what they can to get themselves up to speed with this. And their, their Microsoft does offer, in their knowledge base article, a command, which I didn't bother to, to write down and say because it's too long. But there is a way, if you, for example, have Bluetooth hardware in your system, but you absolutely never, ever want to use bluetooth and you're sure and this is reversible anyway there's a command you can give that essentially permanently shuts down bluetooth access it, it's it's a a net shell command with, Pro- with a bunch of parameters you deletes, disable,
0: deletes the uh, driver right yeah, you it, yeah. it
1: disables that driver so it cannot be started by windows and if you really never use bluetooth that would be a great thing to 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 do you can get yourself a little caught up though or caught out uh, in the old days I used to always disable the DHCP service in my Windows systems because I don't use DHCP in within my own network I've got all my IP's assigned statically and then I'd you know I'd take my laptop or a machine somewhere else and it would refuse to get on the internet it's like oh, what's, what's wrong with this you know, and then I finally would remember oh wait a minute I, I t- disabled the DHCP service because I'm wanting to run no services that I don't need and so so you do want to remember, if you disable Bluetooth in this fashion, that you did so, and, and remember to re-enable it if you should ever need it in the future. But really, d- turning the radio off at least is a really good thing. And if it's a laptop, it saves battery power. No, It's not using much, which is the whole point of Bluetooth, but it does save some. So, uh, And it didn't affect anybody on XP. <clears throat>
0: So this Which is part, something they they kind of added.
1: In, yes, in Service a, Pack One, a, a feature Vista, of Service Pack One. Hey, it's a nice feature of Service. Vistas from
0: Service Pack One on. That's actually the, important. The, the Bluetooth stack was at version 2.1. That's important because it, it underscores the fact that you can add bugs just because an operating system has been you know. Updated doesn't mean it's it's bug free. You can actually add bugs, add exploits, oh, Leo, add holes.
1: How many times do I, you know, do I pound our listeners over the head with, you know, I'm still on XP. News- well, I never yeah. was subjected to this, nor were any of my laptops, because I've stayed there. Which, by the way, has exactly nine hundred and ninety nine dot da- days remaining. Yes, the Microsoft. countdown
0: began yesterday. <laughs> nine ninety nine. I think you should put that on a website somewhere. <laughs> That's about three so, years, folks. We all all right. Yeah, we're okay. Uh, there was a
1: minor fix to Firefox version 5. It's funny. I've seen a lot of grumbling about Firefox. They've already got 6 in beta, Leo. And it's like, wait a minute. We just had 4. Uh, and, I, and 5. I worry <laughs> that, that they're just trying to play the version number game.
0: You well, know, because I think what they did, and this is what Chrome has done, is that they kind of – and they've even said this explicitly – Version numbers are no longer as important as they were. They don't reflect the same. You know, in the past, you and I, we've been around long enough, we remember that a one whole version update is, a, is considered a major update. And then the point updates are considered minor updates.
1: Well, and all, uh, also sometimes the major ones are not free, but the point ones right. are free. So there's
0: often that kind of differentiation. Yes. But uh, Mozilla has said explicitly we're not going to do that anymore, and I think it's it's Chrome that really drove that because Chrome is pushing. They're up to eleven, and they're just pushing versions all the time. In fact, Chrome's version numbers look a little bit like the U.S. debt clock. If yeah. ever seen that. <laughs> they're spinning. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we had a a version five update for the for that only affects the Mac because there were two problems that that was found on the mac there was a firefox version 5.000000 problem which where it itself would crash which they have fixed and then they also found a conflict with apple's own java for mac which could prevent the java plugin from loading so both of those are fixed so only mac people uh if you're on version 5 then uh you may want to fix that or i I imagine Firefox is probably bugging you to fix that. Which it's is fine, because I
0: just went do. from four to five. I, I'm... You, All right. Yeah. Okay. So, in security news, there's a new
1: problem on the horizon. Uh, Kaspersky discovered a new trick being played by Rootkit Malware. They're, they've got one that they found called Cydox, C-I-D-O-X, and we're all familiar because we've been talking about it now for several years with so-called MBR patching the master boot record the the master boot record is the is the first sector of the hard drive which contains a partition table and as we have said before the partition table is a relatively small little bit at the end of the 512 byte master boot record sector all of the other space is actually executable code, and it's that code which reads an entry from the partition table to determine which of the four partitions, typically, is is marked as bootable, and then that code reads the values from that table, and, and to determine where the OS lives, in that you know on on the balance of that hard drive. So this is executable code. The master boot record is a little program that runs which itself reads the partition table. So what that that opening means that that you can use that trick for good or for evil. TrueCrypt uses it arguably for good. That's the way TrueCrypt is able to give us our whole drive encrypted is that they modify the master boot record to jump to a, the, uh, some space in the balance of that first track because by convention the first partition of the drive always starts at the end uh, Well, it always starts on an even track boundary since we've used uh, I was going to say cylinder but that's not true the end of a partition is on a cylinder boundary the beginning is at least on a track boundary so since we've already taken up one sector of the first track, we can't we can't have a partition on the balance of that. We start the partition at the beginning of the second track, leaving all of the first track free. So TrueCrypt uses that to install their own little prompt the user for the password and decrypt the the the, the bootable partition, and it also hooks. Interrupt 13, which the operating system uses in the BIOS in order to get itself booted, just enough to get the TrueCrypt Windows driver or Mac or whatever driver running, and then it gets you going. That's the happy way of using a modification of the master boot record. The bad way is what rootkits use now increasingly, which is they'll install themselves there in order to get a foothold into the operating system. And inject themselves prior to it starting up. Well, it's become so popular that more and more people are checking for it now. It's more difficult for malware to install itself in in that first track of the hard drive by modifying the master boot record. So they've come up with a new means of of gaining a, a pre-boot foothold, and this sidox malware that Kaspersky found does that it takes advantage of the fact that there is a period of time after the master boot record has done its work and and loaded the first file of the operating system that first file then turns around and begins to pull other pieces together but the OS is not booted yet there's a lot of work that has to be done before you actually boot the operating system. This Sidox malware, a new form of rootkit which unfortunately is now going <laughs> to naturally become prevalent, it recognizes that there's this there's this op, this mo, like more opportunity to get up to mischief than just modifying the master boot record. It places a chunk of its own code in unoccupied space in the NTFS partition. And it's only able to play this game on NTFS formatted partitions. That is, it won't work if, if your OS was FAT32 or you know FAT16 formatted, but no one's is these days. You, it's it's going to be NTFS. So it puts its code in unoccupied space. Then it overlays part of... What, what What Microsoft calls the IPL, the initial program loader, which and that 's the code which parses the master file table, which is one of the management tables on an NTFS partition the the NTFS IPL parses that master file table in order to begin to understand the structure of the disk in order to sort of create a, a pre boot um, File system interpreter, which is then able to go find the other pieces of the operating system that it needs to load by by subverting that phase it 's after the master boot record, but before Windows has loaded so this this code takes the chunk of the IPL that it overwrote, encrypts it, and adds it to the end of itself, so it 's able to get control at that point and load itself in place of the re- one or two of the normal Windows drivers and and then continue to do the job that the the initial program loader would have done in order to bring Windows up so it's, it's essentially it's subverting a later stage boot portion of the Windows process which nothing is currently looking for so uh, you know we've got a a new means of subverting the system and when you think about it there there is there's like we we're sitting around waiting for windows to boot there's a a large window of opportunity I don't I think we can now that this has been done we're going to be talking about these kinds of things and we're gonna have to have some sort of new form of protection because just just preventing Rights to the first track. That's the other thing that's happened. Is we know that there are BIOSes, for example, which make the master boot record read-only. They protect that first sector because it's vulnerable. Um, this is able to install itself even on such systems. So we're going to have to have, you know, a next in this eternal cat-and-mouse game. A new way of protecting ourselves until the operating system is able then to protect itself. Because during, this, during the time when the bits and pieces are coming off the disk, um, it's actually not alive yet. It's not
0: conscious. It's just there just being dead code. And bad stuff has a chance to get in then. So the kernel protection that Windows 7th uh, 64-bit has, for instance, won't, won't stop this.
1: Pro, precisely. It, yeah. it
0: doesn't exist yet. It hasn't, it's <laughs> it hasn't run loaded. yet. You need the code it, to exactly. be running. All right. Exactly. Yeah, That makes sense.
1: Now, you may have run across this news story, I saw lots of interest um, in the media and uh, also just from our own listeners, um, about this question that's been raised about whether the court has the ability to compel someone to give up their passwords. Um, and, the, the, and this tur- turns out to be a constitutional issue. This is a, the Fifth Amendment, which protects us from having to incriminate ourselves. Um, a, a woman named Ramona Fricosu uh, in Colorado is in the middle of being prosecuted by the Justice Department for her alleged role in a mortgage scam. Um, Fricosu had an encrypted laptop, which was seized from her bedroom, during a search of her home. Federal prosecutors want her to decrypt it so that they can see its contents. Her lawyers argue that that would violate her first, um, her first uh, the, the compelling her to do so would be self-incrimination. It would be violating her Fifth Amendment protection against self-incrimination. The government says that its request is like asking for a literal key for a literal safe that may well contain incriminating documents, and prior law and Supreme Court rulings have said that you can compel a person to give a physical key to a physical safe, and apparently the question turns on whether the key is in your mind is whether or not you're able to compel it. Um, uh... There, that's there interesting was a, that's isn't really that interesting, interesting. Yeah. yeah there was a on, on npr Declan mccullough who's their chief political correspondent did some research and he he said if you have encrypted files is that like a safe you can be compelled according to supreme court precedent, to turn over the key to a safe that you can be compelled to to do but you cannot be compelled to turn over the passphrase, or that is the combination to the safe. So there is an existing law that says you cannot be compelled to turn over the combination if it's in your mind, but you can be to to um, turn over the key. Now, of course, the EFF has weighed in. Uh, they put together an an amicus brief to the court um, with, with their position, and and they uh, have a, a blog uh, posting that said. Uh, the EFF urges court to uphold privilege against self-incrimination. Prosecutors demand laptop password in violation of Fifth Amendment. Their blog post says, The Electronic Frontier Foundation urged a federal court in Colorado today to block the government's attempt to force a woman to enter a password into an encrypted laptop, arguing in an amicus brief that it would violate her Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. A defendant in this case, Ramona Foucault, Frikosu is accused of fraudulent real estate transactions. During the investigation, the government seized an encrypted laptop from the home she shares with her family and then asked the court to compel Frikosu to type the password into the computer or turn over a decrypted version of her data. But EFF told the court today that the demand is contrary to the Constitution, for, forcing Frikosu to become a witness against herself. And they said, they, they quote, from their amicus brief, quote, Decrypting the data on the laptop can be, in and of itself, a testimonial act, revealing control over a computer and the files on it. Ordering the defendant to enter an encryption password puts her in the situation the Fifth Amendment was designed to prevent, having to choose between incriminating herself lying under oath or risking contempt of court all which the fifth amendment protects us from the government has offered for kosu some limited immunity in the case but has not given adequate guarantees that it won't use the information on the computer against her quote our computers now hold years of email with family and friends internet browsing histories financial and medical information and the ability to access our online services like Facebook people are right to use passwords and encryption to safeguard this data and they deserve the laws full protection against the use of it against them said EFF staff attorney um, and they said this could be very important Kate ca- this could be a very important case in applying
0: America's fifth amendment rights in the digital age Wow this is why so, law is such a fascinating pursuit because yes. both sides have there's merit to both ways of interpreting it, and, and I love the language. You know, the act of divulging the password is a test in in
1: itself is a testimonial act. Right. And so they clearly right. wrote this so that you know to to strengthen their position that right. you cannot compel testimony. And if revealing the password is a testimonial act, then you cannot reveal the password to be to be I revealed. See. Which of course you know we've all talk to ourselves blue in the face about encryption and passwords and you know, all that. You and, know,
0: I thought and, they could ask for your password. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. It's good to know that they, I mean, they doesn't mean they can't ask, but you you have the right to say no. They may well ask. In fact, I, I, you, you I, I know they will You say
1: no ask. without being held in contempt and right. put in jail for right. saying
0: no. And that's, that's right. you know, the but point. It's good for us all to remember. You don't have to reveal it.
1: I thought this was really interesting too, uh, a buddy of mine in the UK, Paul Byford, who I know as Sparky in our newsgroups uh, and has been a super great contributor for years, uh, sent me a little blurb from the UK, since that's where he is, about the News of the World phone hacking scandal. Um, it's been getting a lot of attention here in the US because um, the, the owner of the News of the World newspaper uh is of course very well known to us uh he's the owner of the the Fox network um, uh and when when what paul picked up on was the nature of the hacking which is what i the reason i thought our in, our listeners would find it interesting all it was i mean this was no big deep dark you know 007 c- counter cyber terrorism style stuff <laughs> get a load of this leo when when people we're having um, cellular phone service established, wireless phone service. They had the ability to get their voicemail, not only from that phone, which identifies itself to the voicemail service, but maybe if they they wanted to pick up their voicemail and they were away from their phone, they had the ability to get it from any other phone using a PIN. Right. And the default pin. Mm-hmm. 1234. 1234. <laughs> or the
0: last four digits of your social.
1: Actually, or 0000. zero, zero, zero. In, not in even the US,
0: that. just in case you want to hack some phones, it's very often the last four digits of the phone number itself. That makes it nice and easy to remember. Well, of course you have you would have to know of the social security number of the
1: person you're no, trying to No, not SSN,
0: get. the phone number. Oh, the phone <laughs> number. <Yes. laughs>
1: oh goodness. <laughs> so so this has been changed but but for many years the de facto other phone access pin was either 00000 or 1234 so all these reporters who worked for the news of the world were doing is if they were able to get the phone number of the celebrity or state official in question they would Simply hope that, that that person had not changed their pin, and oftentimes they were never changed. in fact that's, that, that feature was never even used because they were always just using their, their their cell phone to get their their voicemail from it, and it identified itself to the carrier so this is another classic security glitch where it, I would say this is one of those disable anything you 're not using, and so if you're not using non. Cellular phone access to your voicemail. If in any way possible, disable it. Otherwise, change the pin and forget it. You know, forget what the pin was, and then it's <laughs> effectively disabled. Although, you know, there's only what 10,000 combinations. So, if if a uh, if these guys, if these reporters were really determined, uh, and as far as I know, there's no password lockout on pins for voicemail access. You could just sit
0: there and and try sure. them all. It's really an ethical violation, is it, more than anything else. They it apparently really were also using pretexting and other even more intrusive uh, social engineering techniques. So yeah. they were this was pretty nasty. Yeah, it was bad. So
1: Sony once again in the news for how to completely misunderstand the whole intention of a captcha. We've talked about a captcha, how um, it the idea is it's attempting to determine whether you're human. And so unfortunately, the, the, the technology has escalated to the point where it is sometimes difficult to convince the website that you are human. You know, right. you are, I am, our listeners are, Leo, but uh, there are captures where I just scratch my head and I think,
0: okay, <laughs>
1: what the hell is that? <laughs> you almost feel
0: like, gee, I wish I could have a computer help me solve this one. <laughs> I guess
1: I'm not human. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so the problem is they've got, become very difficult, but the goal is that you don't want some automated machine which brings up the web page sort of in its own belly and then wants to, you know, post to forums. These, these are used for, for creating accounts, for posting to forums, for, you know, anytime you want to, you want to prevent spamish sorts of behavior, you, you create a puzzle which hopefully only a human can solve. Well, Sony didn't really understand that, when they designed the capture for one of their professional media websites. The the capture functions in this Sony case, by providing the text which the user is supposed to enter in the page's HTML. <laughs> which which ah oh, I know. Well, which means it's always the same, right? Well, no, no, it changes.
0: Oh, so they have like in, a choice, a case statement.
1: Well, the point is, the computer can read that. Yeah, it is so reading what, it. So what? Yeah, they, it loads the page. It's called and what, gets, the, gets the secret. It's called rendering a page. Because then, because then, what what Sony would do is they use some JavaScript to dis, to algorithmically distort the visual presentation oh, no. of the of the text that was in already oh. in. The HTML, but not vi- uh, visible to the human. So, so the human had to d- go through all the trouble of fig- you know figuring out what this distorted text was, whereas the computer had the distort the undistorted text that was just in the plain text, just in the HTML of the page. And in fact, the human could have l- done a view page, you know, view source. To see it themselves and then type that in. That would would have been easier than having to figure out what this thing looked like. So, yeah, Sony busted once again. Didn't didn't quite have the right uh, the idea there.
0: Boy, it's almost like Sony like um, believed in hiring the worst possible security people. It's like (laughs) it's an example of how to do it wrong. Yeah, I just think they just
1: did it ad hoc. They just every every instance they came up with their own solution, and unfortunately, none of them were good.
0: Amazing. It's like um, so.
1: Uh, I had a bunch of interesting feedback from Twitter in the last week. Uh, Nate Allen uh, said, started reading Damon on your recommendation. Amazing book. Um, Brandon Bognar said, thanks at SGGRC. I found my new favorite book on Audible, Damon, by Daniel Suarez. It's great. Can't stop listening. And then he m- mentioned the domain thedamon.com. And then, um, first opus F U E R S T opus, who is a guy in Oklahoma, said regarding Damon: For years, Gibson Research has been listed as a security link at thedamon.com. Oh yeah, he may have been a resource for the book. Daniel Suarez is a fan. He tweeted to me, so I thought that was an interesting kick. M. Style, whose name is Robert Altman, said uh, t- to me through uh, Twitter, SGGRC, he said, 300 hours and still going. Spin right at 58% complete. <laughs> F- seven not completely recovered sectors, one um, unrecoverable. Spin is amazing. Nothing else would touch this disk. So nice to have a little feedback. It's, it is making some progress. And. I guess uh, if he's willing to wait for it, it's better than not having anything else being able to recover it. Um, Troy P. Peterson tweeted that Chrome now blocks insecure scripts on HTTPS by default and gave a link to a Google blog post. Um, and that's interesting. The, what uh, I, I checked it out. What Chrome is, was doing, it, Chrome has essentially upped the ante on protecting users from themselves we've we've all seen sites that give us what's often called the mixed content message where for example your your https is in the url so your main page content was delivered over ssl securely but then as we know a page almost always contains links to other assets which your browser then after parsing that the the page which came in over ssl the browser then looks up all the other things images other bits and pieces and maybe script maybe javascript which it then brings in So it used to be that until google strengthened chrome in this way if any other fetches from the page were HTTP that is not over SSL, you'd get a little warning that said, you know, there's there's some things on this page are not secure, do you want to proceed? Most users just click right through that, saying, yeah, well, I want the page, and right now it doesn't look so good because I'm not getting the rest of my stuff. Well, one of the things that could be delivered was the page's script, which, as we know, is very powerful. And if the page was delivered securely, we absolutely want the scripting content to be delivered securely. So Google Chrome, as of this m- most recent update, no longer even gives us the option of saying, go ahead, I want insecure scripting. If the page is delivered secure, Google will now block non-secured scripts from being delivered, which, again, I just, that's another nice step forward for, for Chrome. Um, Paul Morgenthal, who is on Twit Fuzzy Muzzle, <laughs> said instead of a plus sign, he's referring to Gmail uh, adding names to Gmail that we've referred to recently. Uh, first, it was suggested, then it was desuggested because the plus sign confuses so many email clients. He says In plus, instead of a plus sign, add dots hmm. to a Gmail address. Yeah. So. Uh, it turns out that works, and he gave a few examples. He says it 's less descriptive, but always accepted and what 's interesting is that it 's only embedded dots, so for example um, you you could add dots anywhere within but like between the first letter and the last letter of your of your gmail address, and you can even multiple dots at a time and they're just discarded. I mean, uh, it doesn't create a unique account. And so uh, that is a way to add accounts to Gmail and then to, cr- to, to provide some discrimination um, without you know, th- that, uh, th- that a user can generate ad hoc. It's, you know, and as we know, there's lots of ways you could you know, salt dots in between the letters of your
0: email address, depending on how many letters you've got. It, so- it's fundamentally different, though, because... The dots are ignored, right. anything after a plus is ignored, so there 's a difference there, and yes, you have to use some sort of cryptic combination of dots to modify your email with a plus. You could actually use an descriptive word which would have been very nice yeah and I, you know i 'm surprised that I would think any modern email system would ignore whatever 's after the plus, but uh, i 'm not 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 email system because uh, it 's not the email system it 's always going to gmail it 's the, it's the site that you're giving this email address to that doesn't like the Plus?
1: It actually, it works several ways. There are actually, from all the feedback that I got, there there appear to be email servers. Oh, that to will this, reject the mail. I get it. The, to this day, yeah. yep, they, they just won't forward it. They go up, oh, this is not, I mean, and, and these are dumb, but unfortunately yeah. it's what we're dealing with I've today. I've used so, Plus
0: for a long time and haven't run into anything, but in most oh, cases just, when I use it, it's, it's on a site that I don't, care for their email anyways I may may be missing something and not know it
1: (laughs) Um, and finally a very good security tip from Dale Perkle who's deep purple 77 on Twitter he said a great tool for security people Qualys browser check shows which plugins have security issues so this is it's browsercheck.qualys.com QUALYS.com. So B R O W S E R C H E C K dot Q-u-a-l-y-s.com. And I put it into mine and it wanted to install a plugin. It's like, I uh, don't think I'd want to do that. But it also allowed me to perform a quick scan on the spot and it found three things. Three things, three Firefox add ons that I had that were. Not that it said we're not secure, and not surprisingly, two of them were Adobe, and so there were newer versions of both of those. So I was like, "Oh, hey, this is good to know." So browsercheck.qualys.com. Hmm, I'm not familiar with that. I'll check it out. I wouldn't be surprised, my friend, if uh, it pulls up some some red marks. Uh-oh. And I did want to share. Oh, I wanted to share two things. First of all, a bunch of our listeners, I was really i am really pleased and and impressed a bunch of our listeners volunteered to pay for that copy of Spinwright that Ryan McCain um, uh got from me for free um, after the the horrible uh, Katrina, Katrina uh event that he and his family suffered and I mean I'm I don't need anyone to pay for it I was more than happy to to let him use a copy of SpinMite for free. But I just wanted to thank all of our listeners for their their kind thoughts and sentiments, and uh, yeah. it was uh, quite an outpouring. And I was not surprised to hear it. Yeah. And Russ Palmieri said, "Dear Steve, please add my name to your long list of happy customers. My laptop, which I need tomorrow to teach my anatomy and physiology class, would not boot up properly." It took 20 minutes to get to my desktop, and everything I tried to do had a three or four minute delay. The computer was unusable. I called Dell, and the tech walked me through the Dell diagnostics. The hardware all passed, including the hard drive. I was unable to use System Restore. It crashed. The next step was to reinstall Windows and, of course, all my programs. And actually, Leo, that wouldn't have worked either. But he said, Fortunately, my data was backed up mostly. Still, I had hours and hours of drudgery before me. Before taking that drastic measure, I thought I might try the Spinrite utility. To be honest, I bought Spinrite as a way to thank you for your outstanding Security Now podcast, which has brought me so much enjoyment. I was afraid it might require more expertise than I had to run it, but the program is very well designed to guide the user through the necessary options. I booted up from the Spinrite CD and went to the recovery choice number two. Then I left it alone. I came back later and saw one of the sectors was bad. Spinrite had fixed it. Spinrite chewed on that for a bit and then was finished. I booted up without the CD. Windows ran check disk by itself and up came my login immediately. My laptop is now working perfectly. When I took math in college, I learned that some theorem proofs are so beautiful they're called elegant. When SpinRite he said, Well, SpinRite is an elegant utility. It sure saved me tonight. Thank you so much for security now and thanks for SpinRite. No one who owns a computer should be without it. Russ. So, that nice. Thank you very much,
0: Russ. Thank you, Russ.
1: Quickly. And, of course, I agree.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise. I uh, want to briefly mention our friends at uh, Netflix. Uh, remind everybody, if they don't have a Netflix subscription, Netflix uh, just changed their pricing. So this is a really now a really good way to uh, test out Netflix. If you go to Netflix.com slash twit, <clears throat> you can try them free for 30 days. It's seven ninety nine for streaming only. That's still the same and i think the streaming is such a great deal just kind of browse through all the streaming options not only uh, tv shows documentaries dramas comedies classics M- you know uh, i've been watching battlestar galactica from the beginning i love going through all those old tv episodes it's just so much fun uh, of course if you're a fan of the uh, <clears throat> the millennium trilogy they've got uh, they've got the three uh, scandinavian versions of the Millennium Trilogy movies, which is, oh, I, every time I click this, I start a movie. See, now I'm going to want to watch this. This is the beauty of it. On your laptop, on your iPad, on your iPhone, uh, on your Android phone, many Android phones, of course, on your Net, uh, your uh, uh, Roku box and your Blu-ray player, your TV, in many cases, and Xbox 360, PlayStation 3, Nintendo. I can go on and on. You can watch Netflix. And I watch it every night. I invite you to try it. And if you already are a Netflix customer, tell your friends, netflix.com slash twit. Steve and I'll thank you for it. All right, Steve. We're ready. So How our does the
1: internet work? Our listeners have been patiently waiting for 48 minutes um, while we caught them up on <laughs> all of the news of the week about what are the three key concepts that I would argue everything about the Internet is based on they the these were new at the time and and really they were so radical that it was it did not necessarily surprise the engineers when these things worked but boy it would surprise them today that they are still working and that I think if, if there was anything I would say which which demonstrates the, the power of, of getting it right. It's the fact that the Internet, the fundamental core of the Internet is virtually unchanged since it was first conceived of and, and brought up to speed. But, Leo, we don't have any computer technology that is... I mean, maybe hard drives are still around and they've matured dramatically, but I mean, so that they're unrecognizable, essentially, mm-hmm. like in terms of density and so forth, you could not use today a hard drive from that era because those were disk packs that looked like washing machines. Um, so, that, I mean, so I wouldn't say that's been, that, that stayed the same, but these three key concepts are the reason the Internet is the Internet and has survived virtually these are unchanged one is packet routing the second is best effort is good enough mm. which was a huge breakthrough concept yeah i love that a- and the the notion of a protocol hierarchy that is an organize a, a very careful and clear organization to the structure of the data that moves across the internet so we're going to look at each of those three in turn. When, when the Internet was being created, when it was being designed, the way computers were interconnected was called a, either a leased line or a switched circuit. But both of those worked the same way. A leased line was simply a, a connection which you lease typ- typically from your long distance carrier. That I think even that back then was AT&T or Bell. And for example the the major um, government institutions and our military complex and and educational institutions where they had i mean they, they were bringing big computers online and they were wanting to to interconnect them so they they used leased lines point to point circuits they were typically sixty four kbo what wh- was the the operation speed of these things so not super fast and and you know generally reliable but the, but the whole concept was a point to point circuit so so as the number of computers increased and the computers wanted to to interconnect to each other it became increasingly expensive to cuz these circuits were not inexpensive. And they were also cross-country in many cases. You know, Stanford wanting to connect to MIT. And there, you know, there was a Stanford-MIT connection that that tied their machines together as we were sort of beginning to experiment with networking. And of course, all of us old-timers remember mm-hmm. AOL yeah. and CompuServe, the source. Me?
0: the source.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, and And these were point-to-point connections. Somewhere, there were massive banks of modem pools and all of our machines had modems and we used our phone line to dial into these services in a in a point-to-point circuit to to, to create a a a point-to-point connection from us to them and that's the only thing that circuit was doing during this time it spent you know it, it was dedicated to us and, of course, that caused problems when somebody else wanted to use the phone. like, so, oh, I'm on the computer. So you had to wait. And, of course, it, it, you also had to suppress um, three-way calling because uh, if something, if another call was coming in, it would briefly disconnect you and then drop your, your, your uh, connection. We re- remember those days as well. So, I mean, so the system worked, but it was, it was not efficient. All of that was called a switched circuit approach so it represented a a fundamental rethinking to to say wait a minute instead of and and, and okay and instead of instead of creating discrete point to point connections between everything we're going to we're we're going to break these connections up into packets of data there w- there was no notion of a packet that didn't exist that you you established a connection and you put data whatever you wanted to in one end came out the other so there was no packetization there was there was no discrete packaging so so that was a conceptual breakthrough and then the, the what happened when you had packets was you you thought in terms of sharing resources and that's when you think about it that's really the the big difference in the internet is you know a cable modem is is a, is is hooked to a cable which is a shared resource lots of people in our neighborhood have their cable modems hooked to the same physically the same electrical connection and we share that resource all of the high-speed links we have now running around our cities and interconnecting our cities are shared resources and so it's this, it's this sharing which, which you can only get if you if you drop this notion of a point-to-point switched circuit and you you somehow allow a massive data to find its way among among these shared linkages that that's that, that that that's this fundamental rethinking of of the way data gets moved from from one point to another so so the routers which exist at various points throughout this this internetworked architecture and the links between the routers are being shared by all of the data which moves across them and they're, they're a they're sort of a um, they're, they're owned by different organizations which end up being compensated for for providing the resource and the bandwidth links so so the system is, is self-sustaining um, but it's it's also it it sort of changes the dynamics because the second the second part of this huge revelation in in the way we interconnect our computers is the concept that best effort is enough and that was a huge one because when you used to have this whole switch circuit this whole point-to-point thinking was the you needed the link to be up and the link to be reliable. And anything, as long as it was up, anything you put in one end came out the other. But the designers of this packeted approach where we, instead of just having literally like a, like a phone conversation, which is continuous, they, they chopped up the data into packets and, and, and weren't even sure what route it was going to take. We'll be talking about routing uh, extensively in in a future installment of this how the internet works. But the idea was that instead of this continuous connection, you packetize as I said and then sort of launch the packet off and hope for the best. The reason you have to hope for the best. The reason there isn't a guarantee and and this is again it's like if you if I can try to convey the incredible change of thinking that, that this took is that you have a router that will be connected to a number of other routers, and those routers are connected to a number of other routers. Well, each link has a bandwidth which it's able to move data. And they don't all have to be the same. you could have some high bandwidth links and low bandwidth links that in, especially in the beginning, it was a very heterogeneous you know all things were different um, network that, that that was was built so packets these, these individual packets of data are arriving across some links to routers that then inspect them and will be Looking in, in detail at how that happens and, and what it means, and then determining where they should be sent or forwarded to, but you have a fundamental problem because what if, for example, more packets are coming in than the router is able to send out? Because that could happen. You could have a a, a burst of packets coming in over one or more high speed links which are all saying we wanna go out over there out of a low speed link but the router can't send them at, out at the same rate that it received them in so so i mean and there were people arguing in the beginning well this won't work obviously this is crazy and so the engineers thought for a while and they said well um, We'll put some buffers in the routers and packets can wait in an outgoing buffer until there's time. So, so that's sort of that, that solved part of the problem because if packets came in and bursts over the high speed link into a router, it would check each one and assign them to their outgoing interfaces and and put them at the you know in a buffer to be sent. And so the the interface hooked to the link that's going to some next router, it would have a buffer that could hold a certain amount of data. So that that could solve burstiness problems where high speed bursts could come in and then queue up in this outgoing buffer On its way to the next link, but what if, what if you just kept getting a lot of more data in than you were able to to ever squeeze? I mean, the the buffer would have some finite capacity, so so it was entirely possible. And and again, this is the genius of the designers. They said, if the outgoing buffers overfill, if the buffer is full so it cannot accept a packet to be forwarded we're just going to discard it we're going to say oh well too bad so and and again in, during the negotiation of this technology the people said well well, well wait you know what well, what do you mean you just going to throw that away but we sent it and the designer said yes we know and You did your best. You did your best. We're sorry that you sent so much and that you were trying to squeeze it through a link that couldn't take it. But after all, I mean, if there was that link that couldn't take it, you wouldn't have been able to send that much in the first place if it was over a switch circuit. The problem was you would know, the sender would know what the speed was that, that the router was able to, like, like the the slowest link in the chain, um, the the sender would know not to send too much. So in this system, the system simply drops packets. It doesn't even notify anybody, and that was another conceptual breakthrough. Because some of the original designers said, "Wait a minute, you know, if we're going to drop a packet, we need to send a message back saying." we just you know sorry about that and then the and the, the the smart people said no 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 that'll create more problems because if we've got a network where that is congested and so that we're having to drop packets the last thing we can afford to do is generate more packets to send notifications back the system has to work
0: blind and you know that made some people's heads explode because they were well, like, engineers you know are are going for 100% perfection. And this is kind of ad, ad, accepting imperfection. It was designing imperfection. Yeah. I mean and 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 this is well,
1: what I'm describing is the way it's what we have now and you and I are talking to each other over it Leo. Yeah, it works okay. <laughs> it, <laughs> good enough is good enough. <laughs> and and so so what's incredible is that Based on that foundation, based on the concept of taking what used to be a, continu- a continuous connection, a continuous reliable connection that worked at a known speed, they were able to just heterogeneize this thing into chopping the same data up into pieces and launching it off and hoping for the best literally hoping for the best. And that packet would would travel through these links that interconnected routers and maybe it would get to the other side. We're not sure. And we do know that if if there was the, if a router's interface, its outgoing buffer, was over full, the router had formal sanction permission to just drop it, just let it go. So, so this concept of best effort was a massive breakthrough. It was, it clearly, it had to be part of the solution of packet routing. And the question then was, okay, how do we get guaranteed connections i mean cuz we we what if we have to send a file we just can't have bits and pieces of the file missing that, that's that's no good and if we're not going to get an acknowledgement if we're not going to get like from the person who dropped the file bit as it was moving by if we're not going to get them to tell us something then we need some means for getting the recipient to notice that Wait a minute, uh, I've got some missing pieces here. And so that, that we will cover when we talk in detail about the, the so-called TCP, the Transmission Control Protocol, which was built on top of this seemingly rickety framework. And it works. We know it works. We, we use it when we get web pages and we don't have bits and pieces missing from web pages. But the third thing that enabled a reliable protocol to be built on top of an unreliable protocol. This notion of even building something on top of something else. There was, there was this notion of a hierarchy. And, and I, I would state that that's the third piece of brilliance. We have packet routing, the concept of breaking up um, co- our, our communications into individual Pieces and hoping for the best, and thus best effort is all we need. That by, by by the nature of a heterogeneous network of interlinked routers with links that are coming up and down, people you know, routers may just be taken out of service and it might not be there. We might be upgrading it. Who knows what's going on? Somehow the data needs to get through the best it can, and and best effort is all all we can provide. And so the designer said if we're going to go packet routing all we can do is hope. And th- but then they created a protocol hierarchy which is the is the third piece of genius where the where you inherently have a a carefully designed set of of Encapsulated protocols. The it, it's for for a non-engineer, it's a little tough to envisionize. But um, the the best analogy is we've all seen, for example, those nested dolls, the Russian dolls, Pushka dolls. You exactly. You've got, exactly, yeah. you've got ah. a big one, and you take it's it you you open it up in half, and there's another one inside. And you open that up and there's another one inside that, you open that up and there's another one inside that, and so forth. Well, that is exactly how the internet protocols were built. They had they not been inspired as they were, they could have just said, okay, well, we're gonna have we're gonna have you know some sort of protocol, some agreement that of, of like how to make this reliable. And how to, how to just, you know, simulate right off the bat a a point-to-point connection the way we're used to having. I mean, they really liked this switched circuit, point-to-point, you know, least line style. That's the way all their hardware, that's the way everything, all their assumptions were based on that. So it was not easy to give that up, but they said, you know, so, so you could imagine that they could have immediately try to to recreate that from these random sort of loosely organized arriving packets but they were smarter than that they said no let's the the base layer the 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 only thing we're going to do with the with the lowest level protocol and again they 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 you know, I mean, the words I'm using are just habit because this is just the way we think now but they weren't habit back then there was, there was no way to think about this But they, so they, they said we're, all we're going to do to start with is address the packet to its destination we're just going to say this blob of data wants to go there <laughs> and so that's all we're going to say and we're not going to know if it got there or not we're we have a this crazy new network concept which is going to try to deliver it to its recipient but maybe it'll get there or not and we're not going to know we're we're, we're just going to create this thing give it an address or we're also going to tell it where it's from so you know cuz so the sender or so the recipient could send something back to us but nobody along the way is going to care they're either going to send it to its target IP, its destination internet protocol address, or they're just going to drop it, the routers along the way. And so that, that essentially is the IP protocol. The internet protocol called IP is this packet, also known as a datagram, and it contained four bits. I think that was, was interesting. I mean, they were, you know, bits were expensive bandwidth was expensive everything was expensive these these routers were tens of thousands of dollars you know not w- what we have now you know things in the in the stationary store for forty nine bucks you can buy a router the, I mean th- this was heavy-duty equipment and the bandwidth was still limited I mean even even when they had links between routers well those were 64k so it's not like somehow bandwidth was a, a gift of this system um, if anything else, there was some overhead from all of this crazy packetizing and, and routing because now they had to have addresses. So they, they, you know, they're, they didn't have to have addresses before because they were connected to who they were talking to. No more are they connected. They're, so there's overhead associated with this approach because you have to now have addresses for these bits and pieces. So, for example, the version number of the IP protocol that there this the, there's a there were a number of bytes at the beginning of the so-called datagram the least you can have is 20 so they only had 20 bytes that were available to to deal with the mechanics of getting this packet somewhere else so they didn't want to waste bits consequently the version number is just 4 bits 4-bit four version number and um, 0, 1, 2, and 3 were used up before the Internet really happened. And so, version 4 is what finally did happen. And we've been using version 4. We Most of us are still using it today. Um, and as we know, IPv6, version 6 is coming along. And so, in IP datagrams, almost all of them have... In those first four bits, they have a binary four um, in them. But increasingly, and in the future, there will be a six in there, which will tell any equipment which receives it what the rest of the header looks like. And that's the other key. The, 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 this IP datagram, this IP packets version bits, they're the first four. And they have to be. Hmm. So, the very first four bits that arrive tell the equipment the format of the rest of the packet. That is, is this an IPv4 packet, or is it IPv6, or IP something else? So, um, so the the designers, you know, the, the, they they took these 20 bytes. We know that four bytes, 32 bits, is for the the destination IP, and another 4 bytes is for the source IP, the IP address that it came from. Now, at this level, there are nor, there are no, there's no notion of a port. That's, that's an abstraction which was added by, by something that this packet contains. That is to say, by a higher level protocol above the IP protocol the ip protocol that that this lowest level one is is all it's designed to do is take its payload whatever it is and it could be anything in fact that's one of the that's one of the reasons for example we've talked about tunneling ipv6 over ipv4 this is the power of the of the genius the, of of these original designers is they said we, we don't know what our payload is going to be. We don't care. but we, So we're going to be very careful about not putting stuff in here that we ever have cause to regret later. And I would say they did a perfect job. A couple fields have been, have been redefined over time, but only sort of just shifting meanings of them and not very much. The system as a whole has been just incredibly robust and so for example if you're tunneling IPv4 or IPv6 over IPv4 what that means is that this ubiquitous universal IPv4 packet whose first four bits have a binary 4 in them and all it contains then is IPv4 IP addresses and um, and some other some other housekeeping information like a checksum and, and, and an indication of the total length of the whole packet and, adi- and also the length of the header there, there, there's some additional stuff but not very much it's really a lean technology and, and protocol that packet can contain anything else even a different IP version could be contained IPv6 for example contained in an IPv4 packet so that gives you a sense for because these guys were so careful with the way this system was designed with the way they they thought this out we've ended up with a a a set of technologies which for decades has survived virtually unchanged and those three concepts that that we're going to we're going to drop this concept of a continuous connection and in in favor of chopping that same data up into pieces, adding some addressing information so that it can get where it's supposed to go, but then just turning it loose and hoping for the best where we've got a bunch of well-intentioned routers that are all interconnected in a huge mesh and each router will just do the best job it can to forward the data out of its of the interface which best takes this this packet of data towards where it's trying to go and so the router needs a routing table that we'll be talking about in the future to help it determine where it should be sent and then this concept of well if the router can't do it it just drops it and says nothing doesn't even indicate that it dropped the data it because that would create more problems if dropping data created data so so, because the only time you would really drop it is in in a in a in a time of congestion. So you don't want to generate more at that point. Then, the, finally, this notion of a very careful protocol hierarchy a this um, this nested it's a nested hierarchy where one protocol contains the next one up the chain in the same way that the russian dolls contain each other and with each wrapping you you're only providing the information you need to so for example just to give you a sneak peek of where we're going to go in, in a week soon the that the udp protocol or the tcp protocol which do bring for the first time the notion of a port abstraction, they have port numbers in their protocol but no IP addresses because that's provided by the wrapping protocol, the IP protocol, that knows about IP addresses but not port numbers. And in another example of the beautiful economy of this, there's another protocol we'll talk about, ICMP. Um, which is you ping. know people are is, exactly is ping. ping and trace route and, and sort of is sort of like a a, um, a maintenance plumbing protocol. Well, ICMP um, is different from UDP and and TCP and and similarly is is not port oriented. So it doesn't have source and destination ports yet it's able to be carried by the IP protocol which knows about IP addresses so so by by carefully designing these nested layers of protocols we end up with a a system which is efficient and 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 lean yet and, and also very flexible where where over decades it has survived and because it was so carefully designed it's been extensible into the future and as we know we've got a big change coming along with ipv6 and we'll certainly be talking about how that relates to ipv4 as as part of our ongoing series on how the internet works very interesting stuff
0: and i love it that you synthesize this into the three kind of key concepts because uh you know i mean i know all of these little bits and pieces or i've heard them over and over again but really it makes it helps you understand the decisions that were made by the guys who designed this stuff
1: oh and, and to why. yes and to free themselves right. from the, sh- the shackles of <laughs> oh i mean it's a huge conceptual leap right. and then to say well but here you know i mean but well, wait a minute maybe the packet can't get there it's like yeah maybe <laughs> Yeah, it's and like, then and so what? <laughs> yeah, but they didn't scrap it because of right. that. They said,
0: right.
1: "Well, maybe we can make it work anyway." But that's how you make a robust system, right? Oh,
0: yes, it's really quite uh, quite clever. Yes,
1: in fact, that's a very good point, Leo. The fact that they knew that it that the, by design some packets might not get through meant they had to design for that. Mm-hmm. So there are because there are many other reasons packets might not get through. Not just a buffer overrun in a a well-meaning router, but the router could crash. The link could go down. I mean, all kinds of unanticipated things other than just a buffer overrun could cause the same effect. And the robustness that they built in by design ended up
0: making the entire system robust. That's just so cool. Elegant is the word that comes to mind. Yeah. Steve Gibson is the man in charge at the the GRC, the Gibson Research Corporation. You can follow him on the Twitter at SGGRC. You can visit his site, GRC.com. If you want to leave questions for next week, because we'll do a feedback session next week, GRC.com slash feedback. Uh, But also, you'll find there the show itself, the audio, uh, 16-kilobit versions, too, for the bandwidth-impaired transcripts. If you like to read along with Steve, and I think for this one, that would be a good thing to have. If you're studying up, this is the kind of thing that really would make great study material for somebody in, uh, you know, an engineering class in college. Um, It's like a great study guide, and you'll find that at grc.com, along with Steve's many uh, uh, freebie products, his pro bono work, and, of course, his bread and butter SpinRight, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility. It's all there, grc.com. We do this show uh, when there's not World Cup action at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. I was a little late today because I couldn't, I had to watch the semifinal of the uh, FIFA World Cup, the Women's uh, World Cup. Um, but 11 a.m. Pacific, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern at live.twit.tv every Wednesday. And, of course, if you miss the show, don't worry, because you can always catch the download. We have audio and video available not only on Steve's site, but at twit.tv sn. Sierra Nancy. That's not right. <laughs> Sierra November. Leo is becoming a ham. <laughs> I am a ham. I've been a ham all my life. But now I'm going to have a license. <laughs> license to ham. Steve, thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you next week on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security now